So we're on chapter 5 of the Disciplines of a Godly Man book. The topic is friendship. I'd like to begin with a scripture statement from our Lord Jesus Christ about us being his friends. John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, than someone that someone lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. John 15, verses 13 through 15. So friends of Jesus in that passage are just, just briefly three things. One, saved by his grace. Two, by his grace, sanctified towards greater obedience. And then third, knowing the things of God revealed by Jesus. So friendship with Jesus gives us an awful lot. Of course, he's in a special category. We also learn truths from the Bible about friendships in other ways. Uh, for believers, uh, friendships with each other. Um, for example, presented in 1 Samuel chapters 14 through 18, the friendship of David and Jonathan. I'll quote one of those briefly. The New Testament will also show uh, the power of friends when Paul, for example, comments on the value of the Christian friend Titus in 2 Corinthians 7, verses 6 and 7. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Listen, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, and as he told us of your longing your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. 2 Corinthians 7, 6, and 7. So just briefly there, friendship provides comfort, and friends connect people with people and multiply the comfort and rejoicing. So it adds to the rejoicing to have friends such as Titus. And then 1 Peter 4, verse 9, tells us how to get started with friendship. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. 1 Peter 4, 9. So friendship starts with having a hospitable heart leading to a hospitable home and life. By the way, that doesn't necessarily mean you have to open up your own home. Uh, You can meet somewhere else uh, and show hospitality as well. So a couple of points from the chapter, uh, Disciplines of a Godly Man, Chapter 5 on Friendship. Uh, The author makes the point that we live in an anti-friendship culture. And remember, this was written years ago, so before COVID, it may even been exacerbated by uh, COVID separations. But aspects of our culture that work against deep friendships are our incipient individualism, isolation uh, from uh, each other, and then privatization. Uh, So the result is that many people do not have deep friendships in American culture. He's writing to men, and he's thinking about men, so he makes the point, especially men, and it's up to you if you agree. He says that 10% of all men ever have any real friends. If it's correct, if he's anywhere close to accurate with that, what it means is the opposite, that 90% of men do not have close friendships. In other words, a Christian man with a deep friendship with a few others, or maybe even a few deep friendships, is rare, And the reason is that many uh, Christian men do not value friendship as much as they should, biblically speaking, and he writes to try to help with that. So uh, he says we're designed for friendship, we are relational beings, and so it's part of 
the essential aspect of how God wired us to be. Genesis 2.18, it's not good for the man to be alone. That's not simply a prep for marriage, but it also is a global statement that it's not good for us to be alone. There's other ways for us to cease being alone than simply marriage. We can have friends. Friendship is uh, what? A couple efforts towards definition. Number one, sharing things. Friendship is sharing things, sharing the same worldview, uh, approach to life, assenting to the same authority, knowing the same God, going the same way through life, longing for the same things, dreaming mutual dreams, um, and yearning for the same experiences even in worship. So religious friendship. Friendship is also love. It's an honest and unselfish sort of love to give oneself uh, towards others, a giving sort of love. Friendship also is commitment. Uh, Friendship takes commitment. Commitment to show honor, even when the person is misbehaving. Uh, Acknowledging equity, that I'm in this with you, I'm not above you nor below you. We are in this together. We're equals. Um, Friendship is trusting enough for vulnerability without fear. If you ask me a question, I give you a real answer because I trust you and this is a safe place and I can be um, honest without concern. So the attitude of friends is my life for your life. Uh, Attitude of giving, and that of course is Christ-like, you recognize. It's a desire to elevate the other person, elevate them uh, to become more like Christ. So friendship also demands loyalty. This is where I'll use the example of Jonathan and David, the two friends in in 1 Samuel. Uh, They maintained a fierce loyalty, especially you could say Jonathan exhibited a fierce loyalty to David, but it was mutual. Um, And in fact, friendship must be uh, mutual. Uh, Friendship may even rise to the level, as it did in their case, of making promises that extend beyond this life. If I die first, you care for my family. If you die first, I'll care for your family. It's the kind of thing that Christian friends can make as a promise to one another. Uh, Friends also give and receive encouragement. I love this verse. 1 Samuel 23, 16. Jonathan went to David at Horesh and, listen, helped him find strength in God. You really got to unpack that for a minute. Don't we just vertically find strength in God? But it's more than that. We influence each other. I hope that I'm a help to you. I know that you're a help to me and to each other. We help friends find strength in God. How? Reminding, encouraging, praying for, and so on. Then you have to face the loss. If you have such a friend, what happens if they move away? In our modern world, you can usually stay in touch a bit, but it does change it. What happens if they die? Well, then it's a loss and grief, and David was absolutely crushed when he lost Jonathan. Um, Sometimes I toy with preaching through those chapters again because it's so precious. Um, the emotional power of David's connection to Jonathan. But um, his point then in the chapter is this, to summarize, uh, that friendship takes effort. Remember, it's disciplines of a godly man, so all of these character traits, we're talking about how we can put effort towards it and grow in that area. So how do we grow in friendship? Prayer, first. Start by asking God for true friendships and deeper friendships. Make it a matter of prayer. God is the one who gives good gifts, and this would be a good gift, so start there. Secondly, be friendly. How do you expect to gain a friend or deepen a friendship if you're never friendly, right? So we need to cultivate that. It's necessary to start it. 
And then thirdly, work at it. Just like everything else in the book, we're going to say that effort is required. Affirm your friend with words. Listen carefully to your friend, what they're saying. Accept your friend as is. Uh, Chances are, a few months in, a few years in, you're going to find things out about your friend that you don't like anymore. That doesn't mean this is over. That means you have to learn to accept your friend as is. And by the way, you're not a perfect friend or person either, so that's how it works two ways. Um, Showing hospitality to your friend and keep going with that. The way that friendships are deepened is you don't stop. So lastly, Hebrews 13.2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares, Hebrews 13.2. Friendship starts at the point that you first meet a person. If you go back long enough in time, there was a time that you hadn't met them yet. So right, that's how it works. You meet them. And so it's a stranger at first. Let me set my clock here. You're a stranger to the person at first. Don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Um, You have to start somewhere. That person that you're just meeting could be a tremendous blessing to you. That's why we do a name tag, so we can meet new people. Uh, Over the next months, over the next 10 years, this person could become a powerful friend, helpful to you and you helping them. Think of it this way. God is always sending people into our lives to bless us. So start looking for it. So that's friendship. We move on to the next chapter then. We're in Disciplines of a Godly Man. We just covered friendship, chapter 5. Now we're moving to chapter 6, the discipline of mind. Discipline of mind. 1 Corinthians 2.16, who, who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. What a beautiful statement, 1 Corinthians 2.16. We have the mind of Christ. We, the church, collectively think God's thoughts after him by faith in Christ. So Romans uh, 12, 2 also uh, touches on this. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So in our uh, chapter now, uh, Pastor Hughes unpacks the discipline of the mind. So he talks first about the potential, the capacity of the human mind, as uh, I'm sure you've heard from one place or another. It's absolutely amazing. People argue about what percentage of our brain we actually use and that sort of thing. Um, But uh, Christians have been given the mind of Christ. So it could also be said of us uh, that we should be constantly renewing and therefore enjoying and exploring the full extent of what it means. As part of the church of Christ, we have the mind of Christ. So a problem he lists is that Christians aren't working at this. We're not developing our minds. We're experiencing wasted potential. Therefore, Christians... Not thinking Christianly. Okay, I have a problem. So what do we have here? What would a Christian do in this situation? To approach things consciously as a Christian, what does that mean? He says that uh, he suspects, remember this was written in the 1990s, so it may be worse uh, today, but it's certainly still an issue. He says there's a loss of appetite for growth. In other words, we're failing to decide upon a thought program that will deepen our Christian mind. Um, we're free to do so. We're free to develop our Christian minds, and it requires conscious negation, another way of saying discipline, right? You have to refuse the bad in order to determine the good, to accept the good. Um, Input determines output, right? So he gives an example in in the chapter, is Christ the Lord of your prime time? Remember when we used to call it prime time? (laughs) 
Um, by the way, I just had a birthday, and so somebody said to me, uh, you know you're over the hill if hardware, first thing in your mind is a hardware store that sells tools instead of computer equipment. <laughs> yeah, that would be me. So um, Christ is the Lord of your prime time, and he's just challenging us with regard to watching TV. If you took all of the time that you, that you devote to the, the prime time taking in of uh, television and put that to your developing of your Christian mind, what would that do? Um, here's a thought provoker. How much could you read this year if you converted that time into reading scripture and Christian books? And Philippians 4.8 says, Brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, listen, think about these things. God tells us what he wants us to be thinking about. From this word think comes our word logarithm, the, the Greek word is very close to that, that word logarithm. Uh, you may remember from school, uh, logarithm is a deliberate and prolonged contemplation, an equation of these things equals this. Uh, as if you're weighing out a mathematical problem. That's the level at which we could be engaged in thinking. If this is true, then this is true, and uh, so on. Um, I think that would naturally help us in our debates with non-Christians about gender, for example. Listen, if God made you like this, then you could conclude this, (laughs) and so on. So he gives an example of male that comes to his house, that, eh, eh, right. But oh, what's the thing that stops him? His fishing equipment catalog. He will just pour over everything. Ooh, I could use one of those. I, I think I might like to save up for one. Of, oh, got to talk to the wife about that. I think I need one of those too. The fishing catalog captures his attention. What is it for us? So he, of course, challenges us to read scripture. Um, you can't be profoundly influenced by God's word unless you're in it. You could also become your own professor, assign yourself a course, assign yourself readings, um, read them follow through, write your paper. Um, And he reminds us of our overarching uh, verse first uh, about about discipline, discipline yourself for Christian living. And then also 1 Timothy 4, 7, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths, rather train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. 1 Timothy 4, 7-8. So he, he quoted another author, Harry Blamire, who wrote, The Christian mind has succumbed to the secular drift with a degree of weakness and nervelessness unmatched in Christian history. That's quite an indictment of our generation, isn't it? Um, but compare that to God's word. There's a final statement here. First, our, our Proverbs 4, 23. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Of course, the heart and the mind are the same in in Scripture, the inner person of who you are. Okay. Finished early on that one, which will help us. All right, we're going to the Westminster Confession now. I've got to pick up a chapter we didn't get to last time, chapter 6, and I thought it would be better if I read... um, the confession statement instead of just jumping in and explaining what it means in different words. So put yourself in the mindset of 400 years ago. 
This is how they wrote and spoke, much like your King James Bible, right? This was written in 1640s, the King James Bible written in 1611, so that's how, how the language uh, comes to us. So I'm in uh, I'm page 852 if you're using the Trinity hymnal uh, pages, and uh, we're looking at chapter 6, the fall of man. Just read through the sections. Section one, our first parents being seduced by the subtlety and temptation of Satan, sinned in eating the forbidden fruit. This their sin God was pleased according to his wise and holy counsel to permit, having purposed to order it to his own glory. And maybe what would be more helpful is if I um, pause after each statement and then restate it in my own words, and you have the handout for this as well. So the overarching Um, statement I have with regard to chapter 6, the fall, is this. We grieve and even rage that in one moment of disobedience, the beautiful world became this broken mess. Yet, we hope in God because his wrath towards sin is right, relentless, and bent on restoring everything that was lost. So overarching statement, and then what we read here in the first section we grieve specifically that Adam and Eve sinned when they ate what was forbidden, yet we hope that God had a good purpose in it all. Uh, you see how um, that statement is within section one, that the sin, of course, was eating, so I find it fascinating that we all have problems with food uh, because it ties back to the original uh, sin, how sin came into uh, the world, but also that um, sin came to the whole human race in Adam. It's what we call original sin, that Adam represented all of us, and because he fell, we fell. Now think of yourself in a school bus, and Adam's the driver. Adam drives off a cliff. Aren't you in the school bus? Guess where you're going? Off the cliff. We are in this with him. He represents us. So then move to section two. By this sin, they fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and so became dead in sin, and wholly defiled in all the parts and faculties of soul and body. So my summary of that is that we grieve that right away, Adam and Eve died in sin and lost right standing and fellowship with God, yet we hope because God offered full restoration. So what happened to their communion with God? They lost it. When? You know, after there was... uh, a long deliberation and in a couple of court cases and you know, after months and months then the verdict was rendered? No, immediately. Um, that's what happened. They were, how severely were they injured in their spiritual lives by sin? You know, what, we're, what we're told here in, uh, in a summary of t- Scripture's teaching is that they became dead. I don't know how you get worse than that, right? Spiritually dead, that's the problem. They were completely cut off of... Uh, the relationship to God, all parts and faculties of soul and body. That's why everything hurts, right? <laughs> My wife, Eileen, um, used to run half marathons. <laughs> she got a kick out. I think she stopped running because she had to uh, double over and laugh so much. She saw someone with a T-shirt that says, um, how did it start? Everything hurts and I'm dying. Is what the T-shirt said. Like, yes, that's why. Because all the parts and faculties of soul and body, uh, there's days that were just plain sad, right? Days that were were overwhelmed um, by despair or discouragement. So all these things come as a real result of the fall. Section three, they being the root of all mankind, they, Adam and Eve, right? 
the guilt of the sin was imputed. Uh, imputed is a word we don't use much anymore. It means to assign to your account. It's like an electronic deposit to you is imputed. The guilt of this sin was imputed, and the same death in sin and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity descendants, right? Descending from them by ordinary generation. Ordinary generation being childbirth. They're preserving there the special way that Jesus came into the world and the special way that Adam and Eve were created. Adam from dust, Eve from the rib of man, uh, Christ from a virgin birth. The rest of us, it's the ordinary process. Okay? And so, um, section three can be summarized this way on my handout. We grieve that at birth, we each start with guilt of sin, death of sin, and corruption of sin. Yet we hope because God has a solution for sin. Does this mean that when babies come to be baptized, we should dress them in black? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> no, it's okay to dress them in white because they are holy in Christ as children of uh, believers. In fact, children of even one believer. They're considered holy in Christ and ought to be baptized. And white gowns are just fine. Maybe um, The question is more, should a bride wear white? Yes, because it represents... Christ's bride, and he has cleansed her, and so on. But this doesn't give us our theology. Scripture gives us our theology. We know that we're born in sin, and we grieve that, and we understand where sin comes from. Who who taught that child to slap their brother? Who taught them to talk back like that? Did a babysitter do that? How did that happen? It's in them. It's already in them, so we grieve that. And then section four. From this original corruption, whereby we're utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil, do proceed all actual transgressions. So they're making a distinction here between original transgressions and actual transgressions. Original means in Adam you got the full complement of the sin nature. Actual means your track record, what you said, what you did, what you thought. So original and actual are the two categories they're uh, listing out here. So uh, section four, I summarize this way. We grieve that all humans are bad from the start, and we add bad actions, yet we hope, because God has a plan for a reversal. Section five, this corruption of nature during this life does, um, does remain in those that are regenerated, and although it be through Christ pardoned and mortified, yet both itself and all the motions thereof are truly and properly sin. Mortified just means put to death. And so we summarize section 5 this way. We hope, because as Christians we're forgiven and changed, and yet we grieve and rage that we still have our bad nature in this life. Why did I just say that? Why did I just do that? Why did I create turmoil in this relationship by how I reacted? What is going on with me? Yeah, welcome to the struggle, right? The corruption that's in us. And we all well know that we need Christ. We come to be reminded of our pardon and uh, mortify that um, sin style still further. Last section, section 6. Every sin, both original and actual, you see that now. Original is what Adam did. Actual is what we do. All of them together now. Being a transgression of the righteous law of God and contrary thereunto doth in its own nature bring guilt upon the sinner whereby he is bound over to the wrath of God curse of the law, and so made subject to death with all miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal. Um, If you're so mad 
that you take a glass vase and you smash it against the wall and you get cut, you can repent, but you'll still have to get stitches, right? It's, it's talking about here the temporal as well as the spiritual as well as the eternal um, ramifications you're subject to. And so it's solved in Christ in terms of our spiritual um, culpability. And as far as our eternal culpability, it's forgiven. You know, heaven, as far as heaven is concerned, this event doesn't even exist anymore. It's taken away from God's mind as far as east is from the west, and all of heaven will not bring it up. But you have stitches to deal with today. <laughs> so it's dealing with uh, life like that. So I summarize section 6 this way. We grieve that all sin from the start and all sin along the way brings guilt, wrath, death, and misery while we hope because Christ brings the opposites. Forgiveness, covering, life, and peace. All right. I think we finished early on that one. Oh, yeah, 30 seconds to go. So um, we're on section 7, covenant. This should sound familiar because we've been studying covenant through Jeremiah, haven't we? Uh, Chapter 7, then I'll read section 1, introduce the chapter, and then uh, follow this pattern. Seems to be working better. Have more familiarity with what we're saying. How can I summarize something that you haven't looked at? Um, Well, we haven't looked at just now this morning together. So chapter 7, page 852 of God's covenant with man, section 1. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition or uh, awareness of the fruit of, result of him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. Um, one of the, the beautiful things about um, Reformed theology is the distinction between God and man that, that we hold to. Um, one of our Reformed apologists, uh, professors of philosophy, um, Dr. Cornelius Van Til, taught at Westminster Seminary back in the day when it was founded in the 1930s in Philadelphia, had this two-circle chart that he would draw, a giant big circle up above and a small circle down below, and he called it the creator-creature distinction. Uh, It's true in creation, it's true in the fall, it's true in redemption. We're redeemed and we live forever, but we don't become God. We don't become gods. We ever remain creatures, men and women created in God's image, redeemed by him, but not God. So his covenant with us does not become confusing to us because we recognize the gap or distance between God and man remains um, inherent. So I'm on our handout for chapter 7, reading the, the overarching sentence. Because the first deal... You can call covenant a deal. I think sometimes the word covenant is a bit distant from us because we only use it in church. We use the word deal all the time. So the first deal or agreement in Adam has left us with no chance to receive favor from God. We are thankful for the second deal in Christ. We truly live both now and eternally. So section one in which we read summarized this way, because we cannot reach up to God, God must reach down and he has. So you, you remember the story of the Tower of Babel. People decided that they would build a ladder high enough to reach heaven. Well, they discovered that doesn't work. Uh, 
since then, we've tried in all sorts of ways. We're about to shoot another rocket up there, and it doesn't reach God. We can't climb up and introduce ourselves to God. Um, there is that creator-creature distinction, as I mentioned. Section 2. The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. So um, it is works-based. It is performance-oriented. You have to do right in order to live. And summarize section two this way on your handout. God made the first deal or first agreement with Adam a conditional contract, obey, and you can live. Did Adam obey? Did Eve obey? Did any of us obey? This is not a good deal (laughs) because we can't do it. Um, So what did God promise? Life. And um, Adam lost it by his fall. So then section three. Man, by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, become, um, uh, what's, what's the word? You, you lose, you become ineligible, that's the word. You become ineligible to receive life or the blessings of the covenant because you messed up. Um, the Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace, wherein he freely offereth unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him, that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. So I would summarize it this way. Uh, God made a second contract, a second deal with Christ for our, our benefit. Uh, this is the huge thing in, in Romans 5. If you read that down through carefully, the first covenant in Adam is described, and we're all in it by virtue of being human beings. Then the second Adam in Christ is all the blessings of God given to us by faith that Christ earned and gives to us by faith. So without that, um, we would have nothing. So we call this second deal the covenant of grace. Second, uh, our section four, this covenant of grace is frequently set forth in Scripture by the name of a testament in reference to the death of Jesus Christ, the testator, again, another word we don't use very often anymore, and to the everlasting inheritance with all things belonging to it, therein bequeathed. Oh, my goodness. Hang in there with me. I'm trying to explain these things. Um, you know, it's simply an inheritance, right? You, are you written into the will of your grandparents? That's bequeathed. So uh, promised unto you. Section 4 can be summarized. The second deal or contract is the New Testament because the death of our testator, our representative, Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the head over the New Testament, the New Deal, the New Contract, uh, the New Covenant. Actually, that's right on target with the message this morning from Jeremiah. And then section 5, this covenant was differently administered in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel. Under the law, it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the paschal lamb, and other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews, all for signifying Christ to come, which were for that time sufficient and efficacious, which means they were effective at works, through the operation of the Spirit to instruct and build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah by whom they had full remission of sins and eternal salvation and is called the Old Testament. So I would summarize section 5 by saying, since the second deal started already back in the Old Testament days, There are older ways of the deal being applied to believers 
and newer ways of the deal being applied to believers. So there's things about the old covenant that still apply, like the moral code, like God still expects us um, to live holy lives as defined in the original Ten Commandments, right? Section 6, our last section. Remember how it said two different ways, time of the law, time of the gospel? So section 5 was how it was in the time of the law. Section 6 is how it is in the time of the gospel. Section 6. Under the gospel, when Christ the substance was exhibited, shown, the ordinances in which this covenant is dispensed are the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which, though fewer in number, it administered with more simplicity and less outward glory, yet in them it is held forth in more fullness, evidence, and spiritual efficacy to all nations, both Jews and Gentiles, and is called the New Testament. There are not, therefore, two covenants of grace differing in substance, but one and the same under various dispensations. Now, don't get nervous. Westminster Confession of Faith is not dispensational. It's simply referencing, because we can use these words, right? Dispensation means a time in which something was dispensed. You know, we have a time where they give out free donuts, and then it's over. Uh, just dispensing them, and that, that's a time of dispensation. That's all this means, that under the, under the old covenant, there was a time of God giving out his law and his word and expectations. Under the gospel, there's a time or a time of dispensing in which he gives out his grace. So section six can be summarized this way. I think it's on the back of your paper this time. Uh, Christ, the head of the second deal since his death and resurrection, the New Testament age, gives himself to us in the ordinary church practices of preaching and sacraments. This is how God's blessing comes uh, to us. I also copied for you in your packet questions out of the larger catechism, questions 31 to 36. Of course, you have the internet available to you, so you have it even if you don't have a hard copy somewhere. But I would recommend um, the OPC um, book that has the Westminster Catechism and larger and shorter and all of the scripture proofs printed out. It's really nice. And just so you know, they're printed out, um, I believe they're printed out in the King James Version um, because the Confession was written in the same, same century. But anyway, I wanted you to have it ready, readily accessible to you, the larger catechism questions about the covenant of grace, how um, the New, New Testament versus Old Testament with regard to, to covenant. Better keep moving. 30 seconds to go. Okay. We're on section 8. Mediator. You see how this flows logically. If you're going to have a different relationship to God based on a different representative, then we need to know who that is and how he secures that for us. These sections are are a bit longer, um, but I think you can follow. Please don't be insulted if I explain something along the way. I'm used to teaching catechism to 7th, 8th, and ninth graders. It just flows out of me, so please don't be insulted. All right, section... Eight, Christ the Mediator, section 1. It pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten Son, to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king, the head and savior of his church, the heir of all things, the judge of the world, unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. So the overarching sentence to summarize this chapter is, thank God for the crucial role of Jesus as I call him 
a safety link to us. We don't use the word mediator either, so I'm trying to translate this. You'll allow me to use the word safety link. How do we get connected to God in a way that blesses us and provides safety for our spiritual lives and our future eternity? And the uh, central verse for this concept is 1 Timothy 2.5, so I put it on the top of your handout. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given at the proper time. So he is listed out in Scripture unequivocally as the only mediator. So then we summarize section 1 this way. We thank God that we are well represented in his son, Jesus Christ. Um, There's a a mountain of terms, right? Titles, hats that Jesus wears here. Uh, Last Adam, prophet, priest, king, head of the church, judge of the the world. Those are all um, proven out in scripture and I listed the references for you. The ways that Christ relates to us and to God the Father. He is the only way that we are living now and will live forever. Section 2. The Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, being very and eternal God, of one substance and equal with the Father, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. So section two can be summarized. We appreciate the importance of every aspect of Jesus the mediator. The fact that he's fully God and fully man are the two categories, and all the rest of these points could be subsumed under that. Under fully God, we say that he's eternal, all-powerful, and he fathered, um, he's fathered by the Spirit in terms of his, um, his birth. He was um, put into the womb of the Virgin Mary. And then he's fully human. That doesn't make sense. Hang on a minute. I'm talking about him being fully God. Luke one thirty five. The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So it's talking about his divinity and the fact that he was brought into this world in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit. So that makes sense now. It probably made sense to you earlier, but I've caught up. So second category is his fully human. Began at a point in time to take on human flesh, as Paul says in Galatians 4, 4, in the fullness of time. Born by human generation <clears throat> from Mary's substance, also in the same verse we just read, Luke 1, 35, uh, proven both Godhead and manhood, fully God, fully man, and then subject to the limitations of us as humans. In other words, he can't be in two places at once while he's man and he needed to eat, use the restroom and all sorts of things that, that we have, the limitations of, of human Having two natures, both God and man, yet still one person. So all these are necessary elements. Uh, you ever look at a different church's website, and then they say a statement of faith, and, and, and they cover this in just like two paragraphs? 
It's like you understand why that's not sufficient, right? <laughs> I mean, the, the specificity uh, with this sort of statement is, is something that was borne out over the last 2,000 years, and it's incredibly summarized here. All right, section three. The Lord Jesus in his human nature, thus united to the divine, was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure, having in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in whom it pleased the Father that all fullness should dwell, to the end that being holy, harmless, undefiled, and full of grace and truth, he might be thoroughly furnished to execute the office of a mediator and surety, which office he took not unto himself, but was thereunto called by his Father, who put all power and judgment into his hand, and gave him commandment to execute the same. So section 3 summarized, we are amazed at the equipment given to Jesus to fulfill the job of mediator. Given the anointing of the Spirit, I love that phrase, beyond measure. Um, don't know what units you would use to measure the Holy Spirit anyway, but it's uh, evidence of him having everything needed to fulfill the most important role in all of history, uh, to be our Redeemer. And think what spirit dwells in us. The very same spirit. So it's such a blessing to study this. Section 4. This office the Lord Jesus did most willingly undertake, which that he might discharge, he was made under the law, and did perfectly fulfill it. Endured most grievous torments immediately in his soul and most painful sufferings in his body, was crucified and died, was buried, and remained under the power of death, yet saw no corruption. On the third day he arose from the dead with the same body in which he suffered, with which he also ascended into heaven, and there sitteth at the right hand of his Father, making intercession, and shall return to judge men and angels at the end of the world. So we summarize that by simply saying we admire Jesus for his willingness to be both humiliated and exalted as mediator. Uh, his, his willingness is one thing we highlight in, uh, in this section. Section 5, The Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he, through the eternal Spirit, once offered up unto God, hath fully satisfied the justice of his Father and purchased not only reconciliation, but an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father hath given unto him. So we rest because Jesus actually accomplished the work of mediator once for all. It's not simply that the office has been established, but that he actually did then fulfill that office and provide the uh, crucial redemption need. Section 6. Although the work of redemption was not actually wrought by Christ till after his incarnation... Yet the virtue, efficacy, and benefits thereof were communicated unto the elect in all ages successively from the beginning of the world, in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices wherein he was revealed and signified to be the seed of the woman which should bruise the serpent's head and the lamb slain from the beginning of the world, being yesterday and today the same and forever. In other words, God is so faithful that even though Christ had not come yet, the promises could be announced to God's people as if they were already completed and accomplished. Uh, we talked about the field, right? Jeremiah's field, that he could purchase the field and it represented what Christ would then later accomplish there. So section six can be summarized. We learn about Christ's trustworthiness 
by the Old Testament benefits through types and signs. It's just like him to be the savior of all believers ever. Uh, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13, 8. Section 7. Christ in the work of mediation acts according to both natures, by each nature doing that which is proper to itself, yet by reason of the unity of the person. That which is proper to one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other nature. So we're thankful that Jesus mediated for only he uh, could do it. Sometimes refers to an aspect of human nature in language of the divine and the opposite but that can be done by virtue of the unity of his person. In our last section, to all those for whom Christ hath purchased redemption, he doth certainly and effectually apply and communicate the same, making intercession for them, praise his name, and revealing unto them in and by the word the mysteries of salvation, effectually persuading them by his spirit to believe and obey, and governing their hearts by his word and spirit, overcoming all their enemies by his almighty power and wisdom in such manner and ways as are most consonant to his wonderful and unsearchable dispensation. So we count it precious that even now, Jesus still retains, maintains, and fulfills the office of mediator right now uh, by praying for us. How comforting is that? First, John, oh, here I have him. Listed out here, First John two one. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And then Paul picks up this concept in the middle of that beautiful chapter of of Romans eight, um, where you think about if you do something wrong, the devil likes to remind you of that. Right? You ever struggle with? Things you keep reminding yourself, your flesh reminds you, the devil reminds you. Maybe you have someone in your life who reminds you things you did years ago. Whatever the source of the condemnation, listen to what Paul writes in Romans 8.34. Who is to condemn? Silent answer is no one. And the reason is given. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Not only do you have no one to condemn, you have one to, to plead your case before the Father. That's what he's doing in interceding for us. He's saying, I know they sinned. I mean, they, they certainly did it, and yet I covered it. Questions? Right, so the intercession of Christ is a, is a great comfort to us. <clears throat> and probably the most famous verse on this topic is Hebrews 7.25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Office of mediator, open filled, and gloriously being uh, enacted. I did not get to chapter 9. I dare not start it at this moment.